The automobile is one of the most important inventions that revolutionized the modern world. In America, the rich history of car culture runs deep as technology continues to shape the future of the industry. Jason Stein, former publisher of Automotive News, is here to share the stories of people passionate about cars, from industry leaders and innovators to car-obsessed celebrities. Buckle up as Jason takes you inside the boardroom, onto the track, and around the bend on Cars and Culture on Sirius XM Business Radio. Welcome to Sirius XM's Cars and Culture. I'm Jason Stein in Detroit. In the long annals of Indianapolis 500 history, there are few who can stand side by side in a short line and call themselves multiple champions. The names are a roll call of the who's who of Indy 500 drivers, those who've won at least three times. They're Hall of Famers, icons, legends. Meyer, Rose, Rutherford, Shaw, Castroneves, Foyt, Mears, and two guys named Unser, and of course, Frank Heaty. It's a short list among a long list of those who've tried, and among that auspicious group of winners, few have had the flash, the panache of Dario. He won Indianapolis in 2007, 2010, and 2012, but he won over the hearts and minds much earlier with race fans everywhere. Dario, you're an astute student of the sport of racing. What does it mean to be among those that are three-time winners at Indianapolis? Well, the last week I've been studying my buddy JR's, uh, Johnny Rutherford's book, because he gave me the other night left a beautiful inscription in it, and uh, said he hoped to welcome me to the three-time club. So uh, to, to be in the company of guys like that just means so much. And um, JR gave me a little wave. The first time I led under caution today, he, we have a little ritual here, and he came up and gave me a wave, so I waved back. and. Uh, then we went racing again, but what, a, what a, a great race today. He was able to come from the back of the grid when after getting hit in pit lane and spun. And um, again, I can't say enough about this target team and the, and the adversity they've been through. And uh, you know, Dan was, Dan was our guy, Michael was, was our boy, and, and, and we just dedicate this to him. And, uh, and that feels really quite nice right now. <laughs> it's a hot day at Indianapolis. Simply put, Dario Franchitti is as eclectic as they come. Adventurer, car guy, businessman, coach. He's smooth and sincere. He's funny and witty. Wisdom of a man focused on the next stage of his career, if only because his path on the track ended before he would have ever wanted it to. It was Houston, October of 2013. Two car in it between Power and Dixon. This championship is going to go all the way to the final. Wow, that's Whoa. a huge crash. EJ Viso, was it Marco Andretti? There's four or five cars involved in that. Turn 10 for the final time. It's a Penske day. It's a willpower day in Houston. Dario Franchitti, that is a nasty crash. Takuma Sato and Viso. Dario Franchitti, I think, is in pain. That looks like a heavy, heavy crash. I can see him put his head back. During that Texas race, Franchitti fractured his spine, broke his right ankle, and suffered a concussion when his car made contact on the last lap of the race. It forced an immediate retirement due to injuries that were too serious and consequences too severe to have him continue. For a driver who had just turned 40, with a tank still full, it was heartbreaking and an enormous adjustment. Today, where do we find Franchitti? On this interview day, he's in cold and soggy Indianapolis, making sure that Jimmy Johnson is feeling confident on an oval, or that his young group of drivers is hitting the apex at just the right spot and breaking in time. Dario is the teacher in a role he relishes. And Franchitti is Indy, and he's back where he belongs, driving through the gates at Speedway Indianapolis with all the flashbacks of the wins that set him apart from the rest of the field. He's now a racing commentator for Formula E, as well as an active member of the Indy community, having never left the garages, now there to help his colleagues and friends become better versions of themselves. Dario Franchitti, kicking off our month of Indy drivers, is my guest today. Hi, I'm Dario Franchitti, and this is Cars and Culture, Jason Stein. Dario, what a pleasure to have you on the show. Welcome into Cars and Culture. Good to be here. So you're at Indianapolis, and we're celebrating the month of Indy. Um, to some extent on this show. And uh, Indy in and of itself is a bit of a homecoming for you um, in, more, in more ways than one. But most importantly, it's just awful weather, right? <laughs> <laughs> it is. I've got a huge jacket just behind the camera, um, which I've been wearing. It's, um, yeah, it's damp. 
it's freezing cold. I left London in beautiful sunshine, came here freezing cold. And um, yeah, we're attempting to get the second day of practice uh, underway um, of a two-day test. And it's, it, yeah, it's looking difficult right now. I'm sitting in the engineering truck of, uh, of Chip Ganassi Racing. Normally this, this room's full of 16 engineers, but they're all in the garage area. So I've got the whole room to myself at the moment. Sorry about the very bland background. <laughs> <laughs> what does it mean for you to be back in Indianapolis every time you come back? Um, whenever I fly in and you fly in from the east and you, you see the speedway, um, it, it feels very, very special. And to drive in, it, it's, um, it's a place that's really become part of my, my life. Um, and you know, the month of May, my, my wife, my daughters will be here and, um, to share that with them and share this love that I have of this place and, um, everything it's meant to my life and everything it's, it's given me, um, it's it's a very very special place. I did some some filming yesterday with the track president Doug Bowles, and just to stand in the yard of bricks or to stand in turn one to look up at the pagoda, it, it's um it's kind of emotional actually. Emotional in so many ways. When you think back to your your most important moments, what strikes you as being something that 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 really sticks out? What what's the moment that sticks out for you? Was it the first, think- second, or the third? <laughs> I think one moment is going to be that last lap with, with Takumasato for the for the third. Um, the other wins were more of a sort of a a race long thing, but that last one it just it sort of all distilled down into that one sort of microsecond of of uh, of contact and everything. And um, so that was, I think that that that's the one that really sticks in my uh, in my head. Growing up, how important was Indianapolis for you, or was it even in your sights? I mean, I know, I know you, you, know, you had heroes through the years. Jim Clark was obviously an enormous uh, hero of yours, but, but what really sticks out? Um, I wanted to be an F1 driver um, and that came a, a crossroads in 1997 when I, I, I had an opportunity through Mercedes-Benz to go to IndyCar or there wasn't anything in F1, of course. Then I committed to, to, to CART as it was at the time. Um, and by that point, I was well aware of, of the Indy 500. I remember watching Danny Sullivan you know, spin and win. And my little brother had a, a computer game, an Indy 500 computer game. You know, it was sort of the press Q&A to accelerate and then the, the left and right, was very basic stuff. <laughs> but I remember spending hours trying to perfect uh, the setup to go around uh, the, the speedway at the, at the time. And that was uh, so it, And he reminded me of that, actually, after my, after my first win. I said, remember that bloody game we used to play just for hours on end? <laughs> <laughs> and so it was, it was, um, yeah, it, it, it lived large in my life. But, uh, and as a historian of the sport, somebody that really appreciates the history, it was obviously, it, that was a big deal. But when I first came here in 2002, I kind of, well, I didn't really get it. And um, mm. that sort of, by the time 2003 came along and I had to miss the race, um, I understood, I think, a bit more about it. And by the time I stopped in 2013, it had become an all-consuming uh, passion, love affair, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, you had said at one point, when I first showed up in Indianapolis, it was like, this is just another race. And the more that you did it, the more you appreciated the 500 and the history and how the whole thing really comes into play. And then winning it, putting on that, winning the race really put it on a different level really really raised you to a to a different level mentally in terms of what you were what you were thinking of uh relative to the race and how do you try to translate that to younger drivers now um i think it happens organically i I do i think you've seen i think the, the, the biggest example recently for me was when when Rossi showed up and he was just sort of, eh, yeah, whatever. And he won the race and he was kind of, eh, okay. And then you watched him sort of transform as, as the year went on as the, as the winner. And um, he started to realize what it meant to be an Indy 500 winner. Um, and, I, and I've watched a lot of drivers come through since I retired here at Chip Ganassi Racing and watch, watch them all click with it. Watch the, them suddenly this moment when they go, okay, I get it. I get what this means. And it might be in the first year, it might be in the second year, but they all, uh, they all eventually get, get hooked. <laughs> they all get hooked. When you think back to your, your start in karting, 
And you mentioned the Formula One ambition. Um, did the dream, being a karting guy originally, um, was it the dream that everybody shared that they would eventually get to that Formula One um, point, the you know, the crossroads that they would that they would make it at that at that level? Was it the dream that everybody shared? I think so. I think well, when you're ten years old, yeah, you know, at that point, it's like anything's possible, isn't it? Some guys want to be an astronaut. I wanted to be, uh, you know, I wanted to be an F1 driver. And then, as I became a teenager, I realized how difficult this was actually going to be to act, to even get on that those first steps of the ladder. And so, um, when I started racing cars, and um, my parents spent every penny they had on those, you know, karting and that first year of racing, um, I got involved with with Jackie Stewart, and I started racing for Paul Stewart Racing. Um, I realized how difficult it was going to be, and then my sort of ambitions changed. I thought like, I want to be. I just want to be a professional driver at this point. And then there was times through that sort of early years that F1 became a real, a real option. And then when I committed to to come to the States, um, as usual, they commit one direction and then the F1 stuff starts happening. Um, and I did some tests and things, but it became, you know, the, the situation was I wanted to drive a front running car, whatever it was. And I was offered some mid grid to back a grid f1 stuff and i just had no interest my my uh motivation is to win and uh i, I wasn't going to be in a position to do that and i didn't want to give up a front running indycar right to get in the back of the grid f1 right it was never my ambition to be an f1 driver it was to win in formula one so um that then i really the the, the the challenge of indycar took over you know street course one week short oval the next road course the next super speedway and trying to be to be good in all those those disciplines was uh that was hard enough what were you going to be if you weren't going to be a race car driver was it an astronaut <laughs> <laughs> uh, we actually talked about the other day i had no interest in going into space i really don't um i think it would be something to do with cars it, probably classic cars more than anything um but I think racing has taught me so much. Um, and I think that I'm not sure I would have, as a, as, a, as a person, been able to perform to the same level, that attention to detail that I have now, whether it's in all, in all walks of life. I think racing um, and the people I met through racing gave me that sort of uh, that outlook on life. Um, but it would, I think it would be something to do with cars. The, the, the passion was there from such a young age. And un unfortunately, my bank balance is still there today. <laughs> and your brother is an exceptional endurance racer. His credentials are exceptional. Um, Marino. Was he, uh, in some ways, uh, equally inspiring with the things that he did? You know, Marino... As you say, his CV speaks for itself. You know, winning Sebring overall, um, Petit Le Mans, multiple, multiple podium, multiple winner there. He's he's, he's done he's done it all. But I also always felt Marino he, he, he cut his own path because he didn't want to be in my shadow, brother off. And I was the older brother, and I was sort of leading the charge a bit. And he got in karting. He always got the sort of the off the off cut bits i got the all the latest stuff and he made his own path and he made a successful career um sometimes i don't think he got the recognition he deserved for what he achieved um again unfortunately simply because he was he was my brother but he's done some incredible things um you know if you look on my uh you know whether it's a new car or an old car look on my, my yeah, instagram he's driving this 250 gto 1964 thing and just watching what he's doing in it or the 250f maserati or, or any of these things he is just mighty and uh he drives a yeah, good one yeah. actually uh on our on a regular basis right yeah he does we, we we tend to race against each other now at the revival and stuff but i think he's a little uh a little more successful than i am he's a little more committed <laughs> than i am <laughs> a little quicker around goodwood but uh let's let's keep that to ourselves <laughs> <laughs> and your and your cousin uh paul de resta former formula one road racer and a road racer who's on the BBC now. So this is in the this is in the blood. This is what you guys do. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Paul, um, unbelievably talented as well. And um, you know, he got that F1 chance, but um it's interesting watching his development since he he left F1. 
uh, you know, he's, he's now got a, a factory driver in the Peugeot and in, in uh, World Endurance, but he's watched having now seen life from as a member of the media for the the, the Sky F1 um, broadcast team and everything. I think he's a much more rounded uh, person. He understands life a bit more, um, but his talent just was never never in question. Hmm. Yeah. When you think about the impact that you've had on the sport and that your family has had on the sport, what what astonishes you about all of that? What is there anything surprising still? Um, from a personal point of view, I I, I still get surprised about the opportunities that I I, I was given. Um, you know, in this life, you've got to have some luck in getting involved with with Jackie Stewart. Um, at yeah. a very early age, that was one of the first key things, getting becoming a factory Mercedes driver. Carl Hogan um, asking me to come and test because Paul Morgan, who was, was one of the, the names at Ilmore, one of the head guys at Ilmore, along with Mario Illion, he decided he wanted to help me. Um, driving for Barry Green, uh, being in the right place at the right time when... Chip was looking for a driver in 2009 after my sort of disastrous NASCAR thing. You've got to have a bit of luck there, but then you've got to take advantage of the situation. So um, I feel very uh, fortunate to be given those opportunities. And I think I, uh, in the most part, took full advantage of them. A lot of people don't. Uh, well, you just mentioned disastrous NASCAR, so we might as well go down that road. Oh, yeah, want. let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> what did you learn about that? What, what surprised you? I learned a lot about myself because I went okay. from being a that year's Indy 500 and, and Indy champion. champion to yeah to running mid-pack at least on a good day mid-pack in a, in a cup car and I learned humility again I think um, I learned how hard I had to work to learn something new and I, I learned to drive a car out with my comfort zone and I think all that really helped me when it came to coming back to IndyCar and, and having that opportunity with, with Ganassi um, I think I was a much better driver having driven cars that I really had no clue what they were going to do, how they were going to react and had no reference point either. I didn't have teammates. You know, Jimmy's going through a similar thing just now. Jimmy Johnson going the through op- the opposite way. Yeah. The opposite, but we've he, had him on the show. Yeah. He, he, he's yeah. actually talked about that. Yeah. He's got four great teammates here and you know, without being modest, he's got me guiding him. He's got all this data, all these amazing engineers, you know, um, Unfortunately, I, I didn't have that. But um, anyway, it comes down to the fact that at the end of the day, I did it. Did the deal without driving a, a car. Didn't know what it was going to feel like, and I realized pretty quickly that an Indy car got my pulse racing and excited me like nothing I'd driven before or since. And I missed uh, I missed racing them, and I certainly missed Indy five hundred. So um, I was fortunate to get the opportunity to come back, and uh, I mean, we went on quite a tear for a while. Was it shocking to you how different all of it was? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So I get to uh, Talladega for the first um, first run in the car. And uh, I had to ask the guys how to, to start the car. Where was reverse? <laughs> uh, um, how did I find pit lane? Then I was asked, did I speak English? Ouch. Um, and then I literally drove out of the pit lane. And I remember clearly in my head as I shifted through the gears, it was a restrictor plate car, so I didn't have much horsepower. And I just thought, what have I done? Um, yeah. So it was, a, it was a baptism of fire. And then my first proper test was in the cup car was Atlanta Motor Speedway. And Kurt Busch passed me. And I'm, I, I, I drive a car very straight. And Jackie Stewart sort of taught me that very early. Kurt Busch went past, snapped this thing sideways. Off he went through turns three and four at Atlanta, and I just went, I don't know, I have no idea how I'm ever going to do that without crashing. <laughs> and, I, and I did crash quite a lot. Deep respect for a sport that's very different but similar. Oh, yeah. Massive respect for, for the, the NASCAR drivers. Um, they're very, very talented people. Um, yeah, a completely different discipline. You know, I'd grown up driving different cars that were all a little bit quicker, a little bit faster the same ilk and then I got in this thing and everything I'd learned everything just roll up in a ball and throw it away absolutely useless to me wow unbelievable so now Jimmy who I mentioned has been on the show 
talked about um, that transition and how much you have helped him. What are you trying to still teach Jimmy now in year two of his IndyCar adventure? I hate to use horse analogies because it makes Jimmy laugh because Jimmy's always trying to persuade my wife to buy more horses. He thinks it's <laughs> the funniest, funniest thing in the world. Um, but he, he's a he's a thoroughbred. You've got to constantly pull back on the reins here at Indy, for instance, because he just wants to go. And Jimmy's um, he's one of the most committed, competitive people I've ever met. You don't win seven cup championships without being that way. Uh, he So here, for instance, it's like, okay, let's just, step by step the same as we would do with with any other driver the same as we did with alex Pillow last year marcus erickson before that felix rosenquist max chilton it's just step by step and uh he the good thing with jimmy it maybe sets him a little bit apart he has that mindset of a seven-time champion but he has the sort of the hunger of to learn of a rookie and the enthusiasm of rookie on the ovals you know second year and the on the road and street courses, but um, but first time at Indianapolis, first time at Indy, um, and yeah, so he's picked it up really quickly. I mean, his first run yesterday in traffic, I was like, okay, this looks good. He's watching the data and he's not doing anything crazy. Um, Jimmy's used to driving a car with a lot and a lot of yaw, the back of the car sliding, and you can't really do that with an Indy car. And so it's just making sure he keeps it within the the sweet spot. Um, but you know. We had dinner last two nights for breakfast this morning. He's just he just wants information all the time, and he's not afraid to work. Um, he could be sitting on the beach the whole time with his girls, not interested. Just wants to work just the whole time. Mm. Wants to push himself. He's always talks about challenging himself. Wow, do you get nervous when he goes out on the track? Oh, I get nervous when they all go out on the track. Yeah, I get so I just. To, to drive the car, I was as calm as you like. My pulse was, I think the maximum I ever got to in the car was like 140 or something. <laughs> Whatever. Watching these guys, I'm like, oh my, you know. 200. That's just, <laughs> just terrifying. And I just think, how did I do that? I was talking to Gordon Murray yesterday and I sent him a picture of turn one. And he's talking about the speeds we would go in there and the opposite lock and stuff. And I just thought, what was I thinking? And he said, what were you thinking? <laughs> Let's talk, let's talk about Gordon Murray and the hypercar that you had the chance to get into. George, as it's known. What do you think of that? Well, George was the first mule. George was an Ultima with the, the T50 V12 Cosworth in it and the gearbox and everything from X-Track. But, um, so the powertrain was pretty good. Um, otherwise, dear old George is a bit ropey, to be honest. Um, but it was just a proof of concept. The T50 itself, I've driven a lot of the XP cars now. It's just mighty. It's absolutely mighty. It's um, I mean, it weighs nine hundred eighty kilos, six hundred fifty horse. You've got that beautiful V twelve that revs to twelve thousand. Um, the six speed manual box. Everything is the center driving position. Um, it does what it says on the tin. It's the it's the, it's the best supercar in the world. It's going to be. It's going to rewrite the books, the rule books. Someone. You know, with it, with electrification coming, hybrids and that sort of stuff, this is probably the full stop on the internal combustion engine, and it's quite it's quite something. So, to, when I got the call from Gordon to come and and help, it's one of those dream conversations you have, and uh, it's uh, it's brilliant to learn from him. It's also it's just brilliant to be involved to drive the car, and uh, yeah, I can't wait to get mine, which I think will be in a couple of years. What does Gordon Murray mean to the world of automotive? Gordon is, he's a rock star, isn't he? He's a, he's a genius rock star. He, he, and he comes up with these ideas and people are just like, oh, you can't do that. I mean, yeah, you can. You just watch how he thinks outside the box. And uh, anytime I get to spend with him, I learn so much. You know, we do filming some days and there was one in particular we sat for, pretty much eight hours and just snippets of filming in between. And I left feeling so much smarter <laughs> than I arrived. <laughs> it's a great ability to make complicated things, to explain them simply so people like me can understand. Um, so I think it's one of his great gifts. But he just, you know, he's, he's absolutely militant about weight loss and making sure the car is as light as it can be. And it's, he's got a vision for for these cars whether it's t50 or now t33 and he's got a team of people backing him up there but it's his vision of what this car is going to be 
does he get the kind of attention that he deserves? Um, I think in, from us, in the context and right, yes. I think from us, sort of a petrol head, yeah. I think people yeah. uh, going to Goodwood with him is brilliant. I love it. Just stand back and watch people just be in awe of him. Um, it has that effect. It's like I say, he is that. You know, he's, he was him and George Harrison were best mates, and um, I do. I think of him as a rock star. He's he's just that. Um, he's got that personality as well. So special special guy and um I, I, yeah you watch when he talks about his about the next project but t50 how uh, how excited he is by it and that's that's infectious you put a collection of personalities together in a book called the romance of racing um a while back who in that if you were to pick out i know this is very difficult but if you were to pick out three or four folks who you highlighted in the romance of racing i see your mind is 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 going here yeah who would they and and this is not to exclude or or but who's been the most impactful for you so i did that book romance of racing with my great friend andy holbury who i've known since my very first day racing cars and he was editor autosport editor racer for a while um and we just did that as a bit of a fun project and then i was it came out around about my accident and then we sort of were looking through and him and I then sort of went, oh my God, we forgot so-and-so. Oh, we for- how could we forget? So we wanted to do Romance of Racing too. those we forgot. <laughs> <laughs> and there were some glaring omissions there. Um, mm. Most impactful, I mean, my, he's not in the book, my dad. Yeah. I, 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 talk about, I talk about Jim Clark and I talk about Jackie Stewart, but you know, my ultimate hero is my dad. And without him, and his passion and his perseverance, along with my mum's, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be sitting here. Um, I wouldn't have that. Uh, I wouldn't have that. I love me building back in Scotland, full of uh, trophies and, and cars and stuff. Um, but as far as pure racing, I think it's got to be, it's got to be Jackie Stewart, who, even today, had dinner with him. My wife Ellie and I had dinner with him and Helen. Uh, three, four weeks ago. And I still, to this day, I still ask him, I go to him for advice because he is, he's just so, such a a special person, but so smart. Um, I'll tell you a little story. 2007, sitting in this, this parking lot for the, in the 500 during practice. And I, I had a problem with the balance of the car and I couldn't fix it. And during the practice week, my phone, I'd get back to the, the, the bus, the motorhome, and it would say, you know, Miss Call, Jackie's chirp. Jackie's called again. Anyway, it rained one day. So I called Jackie back. And he's like, I'm doing my book. I just want to fact check a couple of things. Your typical Jackie does it himself, doesn't get somebody to phone you. So he did the fact check. He said, How's it going? And I said, I've got this problem, Jackie. I'm coming off a turn two with the wind in this direction. This is happening. That's happening. And he said, well, bear in mind, Jackie stopped driving the year I was born, stopped racing. And he said, you don't remember that thing I taught you when it does that, you do this, you do that. Oh, yeah. So the next day I went out, I did it, I did what he said, boom, fixed the problem. Wow. Wow. (laughs) Incredible. Incredible. Why are Europeans so good at road racing? Um, because we grew up doing it. Mm. Uh, we, we grew up from a very early age doing it. And uh, I think that, I think we almost, with road racing, we had a bit of a head start um, on, certainly on, let's just talk Europe against the US right now. I think we had a head start. And I think that it's such a um, well-established uh, business there now. And the, the drivers come from all the world still to race there and I think it's still a harder school to race and to, to learn to race in Europe than maybe maybe in the US and the US is improving with that but there's still nothing like going to, coming through that European school of, of, of racing I think um, but you can definitely see that the you know whether it's the the road to Indy there's there's so many um, it's definitely getting stronger shall we say yeah and when you look at where 
the racing world is right now and and uh the talent that exists you, you know to level it, you know whether it's indycar or formula one what strikes you the most about how drivers are changing probably age i would say there's a there's a you know a lot younger stuff, aren't but- they yeah, yeah, a lot exactly. younger. Exactly. I think we feel really old. I mean, I'm like, oh, I raced against his dad. I raced against his dad. Um, you know, I mean, Max, I think, is the, you know, he started so young to come to F1 at 17 and be competitive straight away. And whether that's simulators as well, but I think it's also just starting so early. Uh, but then you get somebody like Alonso or Seb Fettel who are still competitive. Um, you know, at, at a more advanced age, shall we say, IndyCar, you've got the same thing. You've got these young kids all coming in, but then you've still got Scott Dixon, Will Power, Tony Canan, all these guys of, of my generation, really, who can still who still get it done. And uh, it's great to see that that battle of the the generation. And when you think about what happened last year in Formula One, it must just absolutely surprise you. The, the intensity that's around the sport, the talent that exists, like you said, at that age level now. And it seems like a new era of racing, doesn't it? Yeah, it's, it's very competitive right now. And it's nice to see. I, I feel motor racing is really blossoming again. You know, IndyCar is, is definitely, you know, with, with, with Roger Penske and his organization at the helm, is blossoming the teams and the, and the commitment from the team owners. And the sponsors, it's all improving. The TV numbers are up, all that sort of stuff. Um, attendance figures, the passion by, from the fans, which is the most important thing, that definitely seems to be still there and, and more and more fans are coming, so that's good. F1, I mean, the Netflix thing, yeah, it's a lot of BS and it's, a, it's fake and all that, but it's really brought a lot of people in. And got a Boy, lot it's of brought a lot of people in. Hasn't it, though? Um, and it's been great to see formula one be so open um because it was very much a closed um place before to, to get in the paddock or you know any of that stuff it was just so closed down and everything with our first answer was no and um you know liberty i think have opened it up a bit and then stefano domenicali who i'm a massive fan of i think he's a he's such a cool guy um and they've yeah that's it's all improving and then look at sports car you know lmdh hypercar all that gt3 it's it's i think sports cars are for golden age too after the break i'll continue my conversation with indie legend dario franchiti the automobile is one of the most important inventions that revolutionized the modern world in America. The rich history of car culture runs deep as technology continues to shape the future of the industry. Jason Stein, former publisher of Automotive News, is here to share the stories of people passionate about cars, from industry leaders and innovators to car-obsessed celebrities. Buckle up as Jason takes you inside the boardroom, onto the track, and around the bend on Cars and Culture on Sirius XM Business Radio. Welcome back. I'm Jason Stein in Detroit. Now my interview with indie legend Dario Franchitti continues on Cars and Culture with Jason Stein. You are not allowing roots to take hold around you. You have a considerable car collection of extraordinary vehicles. You race in vintage events. You're coaching drivers for Chip Ganassi, obviously. You're broadcasting Formula E. Is this where you saw yourself 10 years ago? No, <laughs> I saw myself still racing. <laughs> and, still racing uh, yeah i saw myself still still racing um as far as professionally and um you know obviously that didn't happen with the accident at houston so um i, I was luck fortunate lucky to be offered these things you know chip was like hey do you want to do this yes i get to hang about with the same people i went to i went into battle with um to win those uh, indycar championships and 500s so that, and I get to stay in the IndyCar paddock, which I, I love. You know, the FE thing is such a challenge to for me to be a broadcaster because it's not my natural thing. So I've really enjoyed doing that. Um, as you said, the Gordon Murray thing is just, <laughs> I can't believe I get to go to work. That's it's not really work. It's a, it's a dream come true for, for a petrol head like me. Um, and then the, the historic racing is... Uh, I, I, I love to do that. I love to, to drive those cars. Um, whether it's a good way, I drove a, a Lotus Elan last week at Donington with a, a great friend of mine. So, yeah, it's, uh, 
it's busy. It's a busy life with two young girls uh, at home, Ellie and I, and uh, that keeps us busy. So um, life's good, though. Life's good. What's the biggest challenge among those things that you just mentioned? Where where do you find your greatest challenge? Is it in the broadcast booth? Uh, it's balancing everything, I think, first of all. Um, th- this is more my natural home, uh, doing what I do now with with, uh, with, with Chip Ganassi um, and, the, and the drivers and the team here. But the broadcast booth, yeah, that's, that's a challenge just to... Um, to do a to do a good job to yeah and uh it's interesting with well, the race you know the race finishes you win your second your third whatever you kind of know how you went but broadcasting it's more it's more subjective isn't it yeah you never know whether you're doing a good job in a mic in front of a microphone or not <laughs> it's it's a hard one it's a hard one but but there you go you have a mentor again and a guy who who helped you in racing can help you in broadcasting and Mr. Stewart, who spent so much time in the Formula One booth. Yeah, absolutely. He covered Indy as well, didn't he? NASCAR, that yellow yes. jacket. Um, I'm not wearing I'm not wearing a yellow jacket. <laughs> Has he given you some tips? Um we have no, not really. We were there was a point last year we were at London, the the E Prix in London and the XL, and I was doing a track guide, which I do before every race, and I go. Very much like I do with the Ganassi guys. Look at every surface, every bump, every you know painted line, all this sort of stuff, the corners, and I do sort of a two-minute piece. Anyway, I'm looking at this area of the circuit. I'm down on my hands and knees, and I'm looking, and this pair of shoes appear. This pair of I know this because he told me these handmade George Cleverly shoes. And I look and I go, oh, those shoes. I look up, and there's the tartan trousers. <laughs> look up, and I'm, I'm, I'm literally at my hands and he's looking at the circuit and Jackie goes what are you doing I said I'm earning money Jackie he's like good lad <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah yeah and he we had a bit of a chat for a minute and then he went off disappearing but it was just such a funny meeting in the middle of a of a circuit yeah um, let, let's play uh, a little game as it relates to, uh, to vehicles. Cause I know that you're an enormous vehicle guy and I want to talk about your car collection and what you like that's in your collection, but I'm going to ask you to give one word answers for certain cars. We're going to okay. dig into the, into the Dario, uh, um, this is your, uh, analysis and opinion section of the program. Oof, tell, tell, me what, tell me what pops into your head when I, when I say these vehicles, and again, we'll limit it to just one or two words. Okay. Knowing how much you love cars, I know I know that you you will have thoughts on these. Jaguar XKE. Pretty. Mm-hmm. Ford 65 Mustang. Oh, Goodwood. Citroën 2 CV. Don't get them. <laughs> <laughs> Lotus Cortina. Jim Clark. Jim Clark, yeah. Ferrari F40. My baby. Yeah, I was going to say yours would be the word that would pop into my head. Yeah. Porsche. 20, 23 years in counting, I've had mine. 23 years. Don't take it out in the rain either, do you? Never. Never, no. Porsche Spider. Want one. Want one. Hmm. Ferrari Daytona got one <laughs> <laughs> singer porsche and we've had rob nickinson on the show by the way yeah one word um finally here finally here mm-hmm. hertz rental car best behavior <laughs> uh, let's talk about that for a second uh, drivers are notorious for um using rental cars fairly well do you have a rental car story the o- no the only one i have doesn't involve me i i honestly i'm very well behaved in rental cars um i i once um was racing at nurburgring in the dtm and um jan magnuson yeah Kevin's dad, yeah, I'm that old. <laughs> so Jan, <laughs> Once again to the father Jan, part of the program. <laughs> exactly. Jan and I were, were sort of 21 at the time. And my, my dad was there with some friends. He's like, and they, I was going to fly home, but they had a car. And I said, I'll just go with you guys. So I said to Jan, hey, Jan, would you take my 
would you take my rental car back to, uh, I think it was Cologne. And uh, yeah, 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 no problem, man. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, month later, the Mercedes um, travel lady calls me and says, Dario, uh, where's your rental car from? Nurburgring. No idea. No. Oh, I'll give it to Jan. Hang on. So I call Jan and go, Jan, what did you do with the rental car? Give it rental car. Oh, I left the circuit late. I was late for my flight, so I just abandoned it out the front of the terminal. <laughs> Great. <laughs> so once they found it in the pound at uh, Cologne Airport, then they paid the, the, the month charges and the late fees and all that. Yeah. So I never lent Yana rental car. Never lent again. <laughs> no, no, no. Dario, if somebody comes up to you and asks you, what's the best automotive event to attend or to watch or to participate in? What are your answers? We'll start with attend. There's so many good ones. Um, top of my list is always Goodwood Revival. Mm-hmm. Always. I've had so many wonderful times there. and. Our family, myself, Ellie, the girls, Marino, Holly, Luca, they just, they've got so many memories at that event. And the, the Duke of Richmond um, takes such good care of us. So Goodwood absolutely is the best one on, uh, in, the U- in the UK and Europe. Um, I've never been to Villa Deste. Um, quite fancy that. The Quail uh, and this side of the pond. Quail's pretty special. Yeah, agreed. Um, yeah, and obviously Pebble, but the quail is so intimate. And um, you know, so Michael Kaduri and, and Philip Kaduri, they just, they've got petrol running through their veins, so they know what they're doing. They do it right, they do it through passion, not through through anything else. And that's the same with, uh, I think that's the same with the Duke of Richmond. And how about to watch? Again, I go back to Goodwood. Um, I think to go and stand and watch is, is, is something very, very special as a historic event. Um, modern day doesn't get any better than Indianapolis 500. Yeah. To, to stand and watch that. You know, the pre-race, but then lap one when they come hauling down into turn one. Again, as I say, I'm, I'm looking. I, you're, I could see you're, you're putting your hands over your face. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, to participate in. Uh, Indy 500. Yeah. Modern, modern stuff, Indy 500. Um, otherwise, um, I think anything at Goodwood, revival, members meeting. And I, I like the festival. I like the festival of speed. I've been, I mean, I'm a little biased. Some of the cars I've been allowed to take up the hill is ridiculous. Hmm. Let's get into your own collection. Um, since since we talked about a few things, what what are you most proud of that you have within within your garage? Now, now all of your car all of, all of your vehicles are in Scotland now, correct? Um, a lot of them actually. We we live just outside London, and a lot okay. of the cars are there just now. Um, I keep I keep a good few of them in Scotland, um, because the roads are just so great. I have some of the best driving roads in the world within five minutes of my house in Scotland. That is not the case where we live in England. I have to say. <laughs> um, really not the case so um, yeah some of them I haven't I haven't driven in a while which is a, which is a shame and and which in the collection do you admire the most I mean you, you mentioned the oh. F, the F40 so I'm, I'm guessing that that's that is the baby of the of the bunch I think if it was it used to be I always used to say the F40 would, the house would go before the F40 and now I would say the Carrera GT, probably. Okay. Um, I've had that 10, 12 years. And it's the most wonderful car. Um, so it, w- it was so underrated for a long, a long time. I think what I do is I, I tend to, if I'm buying cars and I decide if they're keepers or they're just not. And I'm, right now I'm in a stage, I've got a lot of, a lot of keepers. A lot of things I just, they all do very different things. And I'm, I'm in the fortunate position that I have all these things. And I, I just, I, I love them. I love all the, all the cars that I've got right now. Hmm. Uh, I mentioned one of the other areas of passion for you and, and, and the fact that you're form, that you're now involved with Formula E. 
are we going to learn to embrace electric car racing as a society, as, as a, as race fans? No, to me, Formula E is a brilliant addition to the landscape of, of motorsport. And it's, I don't, and I hope it doesn't take over from internal combustion stuff because there's an entertainment value too. And I think the racing Formula E provides is stunning, really, really cool racing. It's not for everyone. I love it. I love how close it is. I love all the battles. I love the circuits. But I think it's an addition. It's an addition to Formula One. It's an addition to IndyCar, um, it, you know, sports cars, all those things. So it's it, yeah, that's um, that's my view on it. I think it's the boss um, Carlos Tavares of Stellantis said the other day that it's going to be interesting. F one and, and and Formula E are kind of on converging paths, and how's that going to go? Um, Carlos probably knows more than me because he's a pretty smart man, uh, very smart man. And he, um, but again, he's a petrol head. He races a Chevron B19 in his spare time. Yeah, he does. Yeah. Yeah. He, he is a passionate racer, weekend racer. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. We're, we're, I think we're in a fortunate position just now. When you look at people at the heads, of a lot of these car companies, they're, they are the racing people. And that's, that's a nice position to be in for, uh, for anybody that loves cars and racing. For Chip Ganassi Racing, do you do any driver scouting? Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah, that's part of my job. Um, you know, whether that's driver scouting, engineering scouting, um, you know, whatever, basically whatever Chip tells me. Um, you know, looking after the drivers is, is only a, a small part of it. Making sure that really the team's all working together, just um, you know, helping this wonderful group of people to, in any way I can, to just be, you know, if we can be more successful. So we've had some, some interesting, uh, yeah, moments with different drivers. <laughs> any you want to share you can leave the names out well i think the oddest one was probably the uh, i had to almost uh, bizarrely enough have a job interview with kevin magnuson we were talking to kevin about indycar and sports car racing and we said would you call kevin and just you know check that he really wants to do this and have a discussion and as we mentioned i've known kevin's dad i was kevin's dad's teammate for a long time we're, we're pals you know and I sit there with Kevin having this conversation on, on Zoom, and it was just so bizarre um, that, to have to do that. And he, but he was, you could just tell Kevin just loves racing, um, just absolutely loves it. And at that point, he was fed up with, with F1. Now, to see this opportunity he's been given and see the way he's grabbed it again in the house, it's so cool. So happy yeah. for him. He, he's a, you know, every person who's came across him here at Chip Ganassi Racing just thinks, thinks the world of him. Yeah, wonderful. Finally, um, give listeners maybe an understanding about the Ganassi Racing Mountain Test Facility. This is something that, um, it's, it's, it's a bit of a secret track. Do you want to share a little bit of that? <laughs> Can we go back to talking about my cars? <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I, so in all seriousness, I probably I can't talk about that. Um, but <laughs> if you yeah, if you want to talk about the old cars, yeah, a bit more, I'm, I'm all up for that. No, the, the, the Ganassi thing. It's um, uh, we were, I mean, absolutely sworn to secrecy about this thing, and then one day Chip did an interview and said, "Yeah, we got this tunnel." And we all went, "What? I can't believe he's talking about it." But uh, yeah, it's it's up there. We don't we don't use it really that much anymore. We can't really use it with the, with the restrictions and stuff on uh, yeah. on testing yeah it's 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 a fascinating world that you're living in right now dario <laughs> what are you what are you going to do next what is what is what is next for you 10 years down the road um yeah i, I don't know i mean i i i don't know what, what things are going to look like um, i part of my sort of my jobs now i i manage alex lynn who, who won sebring this year um alex um and his dad, Sean, who's a great historic driver, um, asked me to do that a few years ago. And that's been a lot of fun. I get a lot of sat satisfaction out of you know, helping Alex put him in a good position and watching him thrive. So that's um, that's something I'd like to do more of. Um, but I think it's important to have a, almost a one-on-one -on -one relationship as well. You can't be managing 100 drivers. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, you're you're making an impact on the on the next generation to come. And who who knew that Dario Franchitti would be the one who is now uh, bringing the next era into racing? 
because it seems to me that you should still be on the track. Yeah. You're not old enough. <laughs> oh, no, it's that that's part of it. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I had a chance and I had opportunities to do sports car racing. Um, it, you know, so 2015, whatever, with the 919 um, Porsche, but um, obviously the accident didn't allow that. But uh, I, I, I do, I feel very fortunate about what I was able to do, what I was able to to achieve um you know and the the life it provided too i mean the toys that provide all these cars and, and stuff uh, those didn't come you know those came through racing through being successful in racing and that's um you know that was that was always fun it was always fun to sort of have a successful race or you know win a 500 and go out and buy some crazy car <laughs> yeah <laughs> one final thing when you won the first indy 500 what crazy car did you go out and buy First five hundred, um, I think it was a, it was quite restrained. It was a GT three nine nine seven GT three Gen one. Um, bought that, loved that car. Should never have sold it. Um, Two thousand and ten, I think that was Carrera GT. Two thousand and twelve, um, I think I hung off on two thousand and twelve, and then I bought the I bought the Daytona Spider a bit later. Um, quite a few years later, but I'd sort of I'd saved the cash <laughs> from winning that last <laughs> race. So, um, yeah, like I say, it, it allowed me to buy some really some really fun cars. Well, congratulations again on on those on those three victories. Now, ten years, unbelievably that that it's been. Uh, we are getting older, Dario, but uh, we I, are. I, I I really appreciate you sharing your thoughts here on. Cars and Culture and the month of May at Indy, there is one name among very few that rises to the top, and it is yours. Thanks, Jason. Thanks to Indy legend Dario Franchitti, and thanks for listening to Cars and Culture. You can follow us on LinkedIn and Facebook, as well as on Instagram at Cars and Culture SXM and Twitter at Cars and Culture. I'm Jason Stein in Detroit. We'll see you down the road. Volume Sirius XM 106 is your 24-7 talk channel about music. Featuring shows hosted by musicians, including Melissa Etheridge. How old were you when you wrote that song, for goodness sakes? Goo Goo Doll singer John Resnick. Do you find yourself being more creative when you're in a darker place? Drummer Steve Jordan. You are embedded in American pop culture. Anthrax guitarist Scott Ian. I give a glance to my right and it's Mick Jagger standing next to me. This is Volume Sirius XM 106. Your liner notes to the world of music. Morning, sunshine. I'm Robin Mead. Let's jump right in and get you ready. Morning Express on HLN is the bright way to start your day. Some of the other top stories today that we're following for you. With the latest news that affects you. There may be a breakthrough for a stimulus deal. People are being advised to cancel or postpone outdoor activities. Thank you for letting us be the ones to start your day. Morning Express with Robin Mead. Weekdays from 6 to 10 a.m. Eastern on HLN, Sirius XM 117.